The text today is Romans 1, 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in holy scriptures concerning his son, who descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, we give you thanks for life this morning. Physical life, breath, another day, but Lord, another day with you and with your people and under your word. So now, Lord, we simply ask you to do what you said you do through your word, which is speak, speak to your people. Build us up, encourage us, rebuke us, do as you will. Bring others in. Guide us today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Biblical theology is kind of an overwhelming uh, topic to speak on, to be honest, because it's broad and it's um, so out there in the spotlight in academic studies with so many branches shooting out from its center. Now, what I mean by broad is that the term itself describes a way of interpreting the Bible. So on the one hand, the term biblical theology is locked into this complex web, this realm of hermeneutics. On the other hand, biblical theology describes um, a theological discipline, kind of a sister discipline to the, to the more well-known systematic theology. So it's broad because it not only reaches into the complex realm of hermeneutics, but it's also locked into the controversial realm of theology. And those two things, complex hermeneutics and controversial theology, makes like 11 of you salivate and the rest of you yawn. Or worse, makes the rest of you frustrated. Because your world this morning is crashing down on you. And your life is falling apart. And you are being tested and tried. And what you came for this morning is not academics and lecture, but Christ. And renewed hope and encouragement to keep fighting this good fight of faith. And I'm thankful this morning that I'm not necessarily here to give you my take on the relationship of biblical theology to hermeneutics or to systematic theology, although what I am here to talk about this morning is inescapably hermeneutical and theological. I'm glad that I'm here, however, to talk about the center 
the center of biblical theology because that is what your commitment to biblical theology as a course distinctive of your church is capturing and that is what's going to renew your hope this morning and encourage you to fight this morning and call you to persevere this morning because that center is your commitment to the belief that the Bible is the revelation of God that makes known the Father's eternal plan to glorify himself by exalting his Son as Lord over all through the redemption that he accomplished in his incarnate life, his sacrificial death, his triumphant resurrection. Which redemption once accomplished, the Holy Spirit now relentlessly applies for the glory of Christ, for the salvation of sinners, and for the reconciliation of all things under Christ's reign. To simplify, you could just say that your commitment to biblical theology is your commitment to the exalted Christ at the center of the Bible's story and at the center of your life and the object of your faith and the goal of your hope and the source of the grace that you need today to persevere another day. The question that we have to ask ourselves, however, is, is this the way that we're supposed to read the Bible? Or is this a forced or lazy or surfacey way to read the Bible? Or a symptom of the bigger problem of our day to disregard depth and detail for summary and cliff notes or 140 characters or even 280 characters now? So is your biblical theological commitment to Christ at the center of the Bible story, incarnate, crucified, risen from the dead, exalted, reigning, coming again, and so much more, is that the lazy cliff notes summary at the expense of all the detail that we run the risk of running people down? down into theological immaturity by emphasizing, or is that the detail? Is that the center? Is that the point or the goal? And how can we be sure? I've benefited immensely from Jim Hamilton in regard to biblical theology. Because there are an endless number of definitions and takes on biblical theology out there. And many of them make biblical theology really intimidating and mysterious and worse, reserved for a handful of professionals who somehow have the ability to see connections in Scripture that nobody else sees. And if that's what it means to do biblical theology, then I guess that I'll have to rely on the professionals to do it for me. Brothers and sisters, the majority of Christians I interact with believe something like that, which may mean the majority of you do as well. You're blown away and you're discouraged at the same time when someone makes a connection to Christ in the scriptures and you think to yourself, I've read that a hundred times and I've never seen that, nor do I think I could ever see that. So I guess I'll rely on them. Let me encourage you. 
this morning, brothers and sisters, that the problem may not always be with you and your eyes and your lens. But listen to the way that Jim Hamilton defines biblical theology because it is so good and it's so true and somehow it's such a letdown and yet it's somehow so relieving and all of that at the same time. You ready for this robust, long, academic definition of biblical theology from one of the leading biblical theologians of our day? Ready for it? Biblical theology is simply the interpretive perspective of the biblical authors. And you're waiting for the other 40 words of the definition, and there's none. Is that not a glorious, relieving, awesome, deflating letdown of a definition Because you were likely waiting and wanting with pen in hand for him to share the secret or the code to doing biblical theology like he does so that you can do it as well. And all he's saying, all he does, and all we should be doing, and all biblical theology is, is following the interpretive perspective of the biblical authors. They are our teachers. They're the ones that can best answer for us if Christ exalted is truly at the center of the scriptures or if we're just being lazy. If we're missing out on so much by neglecting the details, or if we're gaining so much because we actually see the details. And one of the places where the interpretive perspective of the biblical authors comes out so undeniably clear is our text this morning. It's Romans 1, 1 to 4. Admittedly, Romans 1 isn't necessarily known for these four verses, is it? Romans 1 is popular because because of what comes after these four verses where Paul describes mankind's suppression of the truth about God that's revealed in general revelation and the wrath that hangs justly over man for that suppression. And let's admit it, it's easy to pounce on the truth-oppressing world when we read chapter 1 and when we look at the world. But let's not forget this morning, brothers and sisters, that Paul's greater point in saying what he says in chapter 1, which is to sh- it is to show in chapter 2 how much worse it is to not only have the sun and the sky and the moon and the stars and dirt and trees and suppress the truth about God revealed in that natural revelation. His point in chapter 1 is to show how much worse it is in chapter 2. To have God's word and to have God's law and to have God's covenant and to have the many signs embedded in those institutions and yet have your allegiance to the author of it all remain external and your heart unaffected, unchanged, uncut, uncircumcised, ultimately unregenerated. 
So chapter 1 inevitably causes us to look out at those who so obviously and unapologetically reject all the exposure they've had, but it doesn't let us dwell there long because chapter 2 quickly brings us before the mirror of self-examination to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling before the open word of the living God and before the word made flesh in Jesus Christ. Paul's introduction in Romans 1 is so significant because it shows that what people miss when they suppress the truth is not ultimately laws and morality and nations and identity and covenants and signs and theology or a story, but Christ himself. They miss Christ. And in missing Christ, they miss everything else in Christ that Romans goes on to unfold. Righteousness, justification, sanctification, glorification, union, communion, adoption, assurance, and so much more. That's the weight of these verses, and it is an immense weight. And it is an immense weight that I want to feel every time I dabble in the word, every time I've drawn into theological debate, every time that I'm looking for urgent answers to life's questions or when I'm looking for immediate help under the collapsing weight of stress or swift rescue from the lure of temptation. These verses are making a hermeneutical statement, no doubt. In other words, they're making a statement on how to understand the Bible as a whole in its parts and how to understand its parts in light of the whole. So hermeneutics, check. And they're no doubt making a theological statement as well because they're connecting categories. The promise of the Father, the work of the Son, the power of the Spirit. And it's fun to work through all of that and rehearse it so we can study it and sort it all out and debate the implications theologically and hermeneutically. But the point here is that we can do all that and in the process we can end up doing exactly what Paul warns about in chapter 2. And in our fascination with the detail of it all, we can actually stop short of the center and miss Christ alive from the dead, exalted, reigning at the right hand of the Father, when God would have us by these same words continually drawn back into the center where Christ is so that we can go forth from that center in every direction with life in him and bearing much fruit, preaching from that center with life in him, bearing much fruit, teaching from that center with life in him bearing much fruit, parenting from that center with life in him and bearing much fruit, working, resting, eating, drinking, hosting, bearing witness in whatever you do. In word or in deed, with life in Christ and bearing much fruit. That, I believe, is along the lines of what you mean by stating your allegiance to biblical theology as a core distinctive of your church. It's not a stuffy distinctive. Nor is it an arrogant claim that your theology is more biblical than the church down the street. 
And it's deeper than mere hermeneutics. And it's more centered than simply choosing a trendy buzzword to align yourself with others theologically. It's saying biblical theology is a distinctive that we embrace because it simply seeks to follow the biblical authors to where Christ is in the scriptures, to where our life is hidden in union with him through his finished work, but not just hidden in inseparable eternal union, but brothers and sisters bursting forth in life and with life from that center toward others to draw them in, bearing much fruit by the power of the Spirit for the exaltation of Christ and the glory of the Father. Now that's a lot of talking about biblical theology around Romans 1. But let's let Paul take us in. And show us the way to that center from Romans 1. We'll start with the obvious. Verse 1. Paul says three things. He says he's a servant of Christ. He said he was called to be an apostle. And he says he was set apart for the gospel of God. No real surprises there. But that last comment sets us up for the surprise that comes in verse 2. He says the gospel for which he was called and set apart was, quote, promised beforehand by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Just in case, it's taking a few moments to process that. He's saying God promised the gospel through his prophets in the Old Testament. He cannot say it more plainly, and the only other person that perhaps said it more plainly in the scriptures was Luke. When he said that on the road to Emmaus, Jesus interpreted to his disciples in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. So when Paul says prophets here in Romans 1, we shouldn't be thinking formally, categorically, restrictively, the prophets, as in the portion of the Old Testament distinct from the law and the writings. He's using the term to include all who spoke or wrote about the gospel in the Old Testament. And if you were to challenge me on that and say, on what basis do you draw that conclusion? I would simply respond that as Paul unfolds this gospel in the remaining 15 plus chapters of Romans, he does so how from the law and the writings and the prophets more often and more thoroughly than any of his other letters and not always in the most obvious Isaiah 714 way. Because let's face it, everybody agrees that here and there, sprinkled and scattered throughout the Old Testament, there are passages that you can't work around if seeing Christ in the gospel in the Old Testament doesn't fit with your theology. But as Romans unfolds, we learn that Paul is in no way being restrictive in his comment in verse 2. He's actually using the Old Testament to tell the story. 
just in case there's any question as to what the gospel of the Old Testament, according to Paul, was, and you're at all tempted to say that it was a different gospel than that revealed in Jesus in the New Testament, just read on in Romans 1, because he says the gospel that God revealed by promise through the many prophetic voices that wrote the Old Testament, that gospel, he says, concerned God's son, and not just God's son, but God's son who descended from the line of David. Now, in, in, in our categories and theological terms, when, re, when we read son of God, son of David, we instantly see what category? Hypostatic union. The uniting of the divine and human natures of Christ in his incarnation. I don't necessarily think that Paul was thinking in those terms, but he is affirming that the incarnation of the eternal Son of God is an Old Testament promise, not a New Testament surprise. God's eternal Son incarnate through the flesh of David's line, and he's doing two important things by these words. He's affirming the full humanity of Jesus on the one hand, that he, he is a descendant of David according to the flesh, but that he is the descendant of David according to the promise. In other words, he is the heir of the covenant promises to David in 2 Samuel 7. He's the offspring whose reign would be established forever, which is why Paul returns in verse 4, not just to Christ, the eternal Son of God, who humbled himself to become flesh in the line of David, but Christ, the Son of God, risen from the dead, exalted and enthroned in power, in fulfillment of the promise to David. Read the words again again. Descended from the line of David according to the flesh and declared, announced to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. It's the imagery of trumpets blasting, announcing that the Son of God has risen not in humility but in power. And that beautiful picture of the ascension where Christ's victory is on display follows closely in the train of this passage. By the end of verse 4, Paul unmistakably names this son of God, son of David, just in case there are any remaining doubts. Jesus Christ. And not just Jesus the Christ, but Jesus the Christ who has become our Lord. Now, we will get to verses 5 and 6 later. But we need to pause for a few minutes here because we don't want to lose sight of the big picture, literally. Because that is the specific aspect of biblical theology that we are here to focus on this morning. I, I think, at least, if, if nothing more up to this point, I, I hope that it's become pretty clear from Romans 1, 1 to 4, that Paul's interpretive perspective of the Old Testament is the gospel. The Old Testament declares the gospel by promise through the prophets who wrote it. And at the center of the gospel that the Old Testament declares by promise stands the Christ, 
the eternal son of God, humbling himself in the incarnation, taking on human flesh in the line of David in order to fulfill the covenant promises given to him in 2 Samuel chapter 7, further humbling himself even to the point of death on the cross, but risen from the dead by the power of the spirit, exalted to the right hand of God the Father and enthroned in power as Lord over all and our Lord to everyone who stakes the all of their hope in him. But it's one thing for Paul to state or to announce his interpretive perspective. It is quite another thing for him to actually show us how he got there. So just saying that the Bible is telling one story in its whole, revealed in its parts and through its parts, is uniting the whole in the person and work of Christ, may in fact compel you all over again to faith this morning in the person and work of Christ. And it may fill you with hope again this morning, but it doesn't necessarily help you begin to see it yourself. And believe it afresh when your hope is on the line or when you're drifting towards despair or when the pull of temptation is strong or when the weight of your suffering is causing your legs to shake and your knees to buckle and you feel like your collapse is imminent. But to begin to see it for yourself is what's going to draw you in. Not merely into the idea of biblical theology. That's not the goal here. The goal isn't to draw you into a hermeneutic or to a more clean alternative to systematic theology. That's not the goal. That's pointless if it doesn't draw you into the center where Christ is and compel you out through Christ to draw others in. What I'm suggesting is that Paul gives us in a sentence his interpretive perspective in verses 1 through 4. We've read it. But then in the rest of the book, he shows us how he got there, how he arrived at that conclusion. Because as you well know, as you well know, What he states in verses 1 through 4 was not always the Apostle Paul's perspective. It wasn't always his lens. He was one of those hermeneutic-loving, theology-loving, law-keeping, pious guys living with an uncircumcised heart and completely missing Christ until his heart was cut by the Spirit through the Word and he was born again. So what changed in his interpretive perspective? I'm about to be annoyingly mile wide and inch deep. But Jason told me that you release this trap door if the speaker goes over 40 minutes. And I forgot to look when I started. So I claim ignorance. But really, the next few minutes is just meant to give you a brief glimpse through a lens that God may be pleased to use to adjust if need be. Renew, quite possibly, or strengthen your eyes all in his time. So get ready to be annoyed at me. But Jason will have to clean up my mess.
I'm saying that what changed with Paul outside of his conversion on the road to Damascus, what changed for Paul was that he began to see not only the shadows of the Old Testament, but the substance of the shadows in Christ. He began to see not just promises with linear, literal fulfillments, but promises with escalated spiritual fulfillments. He began to see not just static institutions, but designed trajectory in those institutions toward a greater goal. Not just words with present meaning, but themes and threads being pulled and tugged forward by the Holy Spirit. Spirit as he used the authors of Scripture. Not just signs, but seals. Not just revelation, but progress. Not just a people under a covenant with a law that contained promises and warnings and blessings and curses and a sacrificial system and a priesthood and kings who ruled and prophets who preached. Not just a people with a past, but a person with a glorious never-ending future, who reigns as king, whose word as priest still speaks, whose offering in the holy place as the great high priest of our faith still satisfies and will always satisfy because he himself fulfilled the commands of the law without trespassing even in one point and then offered up his very own life as the Lamb of God to absorb the curse of the fall and the curses of the law who inaugurated a new covenant through the blood of that sacrifice and who rose from the dead to secure all of its blessings, who ascended to the heavens to generously mediate the sharing of those blessings with those many brothers and sisters of all nations who are united to to him by faith, who compose the true Israel because he is the true Israel. In other words, his eyes were open to see that all the promises of God simply find their absolute, ultimate, eternal, resounding yes in Christ. I'll try to be a little bit more specific. He saw the substance of Christ, the king, behind the shadow of David. Chapter 1, verse 3. He saw circumcision of the heart by the Spirit as the greater seal of the sign of circumcision of the flesh by the knife, by the hand of man. That's chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. He saw a true spiritual Israel among the offspring of Abraham and the true sons and the true offspring of Abraham, not in, Christ, not in Isaac and Jacob and his 12 sons, but in Christ in chapter 4, verse 18, which means he saw not only the Abrahamic covenant fulfilled in Christ, Abraham's true offspring, but the Davidic covenant as well in David's true heir. He saw justification by faith apart from the works of the law and righteousness as a gift imputed by the power of God through the perfect obedience of Christ in the gospel, not as an accomplishment of human obedience to the law. And he uses who as his example? Abraham. 
That's chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where he also quotes Habakkuk 2.4 as fulfilled. It's also chapter 3, verses 21 to 24, where the righteousness of God is manifested apart from the law through faith in Jesus Christ, and justification is declared freely as a gift by grace. In that same chapter, he saw not merely sacrifices and blood and the covering of sin, but redemption and propitiation through the blood of Christ's sacrifice. He saw Abraham not merely as the father of the people of Israel according to the flesh through the sign of circumcision, but as the father of all who believe of all time, Jew and Gentile, through the circumcision of the heart. He saw Adam not merely as our forefather whose sin led to condemnation for all united to him in the flesh, but as a type, he says it, a type of Christ whose obedience leads to freely imputed righteousness and life to all who are united to him by the Spirit. He saw not only Abraham offering up Isaac, his only son, in Genesis 22 in Romans 8, verse 32. But he saw God the Father who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all. He saw the stumbling stone that God set in the way of Israel in Zion in the temple and for their judgment, not locked into a historical moment, but escalated in Christ himself, whose own temple of his body absorbed the judgment of his people and was rebuilt again in three days, just like Jesus said it would be in Matthew 26 leading to the salvation of all who believe. That's Romans 9, verse 33. We could go on and on with Christ, the deliverer from Zion, from, Romans, from Isaiah 59 and Romans 11. And the new covenant in him, or Christ, the root of Jesse, from Romans 15, verse 12, or the imagery in chapter 16, verse 20, of the head of the serpent crushed in fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 as a promise of the new creation already in the finished work of Christ, and not yet, but brothers and sisters, real soon, he says to the Romans, forever when Christ returns. And look what he says at the end of the book. Because it encourages us that what we've just done is what he intended us to do when he sent us out on this journey in chapter 1 and verse 2. After all of that and so much more in the book, he closes with this doxology. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed. Interpretive perspective, disclosed. More importantly, Christ exalted, disclosed with a dual purpose. Verse 26 of Romans 16. The obedience that is the result of faith, verse 27, the glory of God. It's why it's disclosed. Which pushes us back to chapter 1. Because it's about now that you're either really frustrated that I just blew through the entire book and handpicked a few examples, or you're really disappointed because this is still all academic and confusing and ultimately meaningless to you. 
So let's go back to chapter 1 and remember why, they're do- why we're doing this. At the beginning I said biblical theology as a distinctive of your church is significant because it simply says that as a church you're committed to following the biblical authors again and again and again in your Sunday preaching, in your home Bible studies, in your personal devotions, in your conversations, you're committed to following the biblical authors in their words to where Christ is in the scriptures because that's where your life private and your life Corporate not only is hidden in union with him, but bursting forth with life from that center toward others to draw them in, bearing much fruit by the Spirit for Christ's exaltation and for the glory of the Father. And Paul explains what he means by that in verses 5 and 6. It means that where Christ is, that's where we find grace. And our calling, he says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. For Paul, he's describing his calling in verse 1, apostleship. It's not, it's not us, but it does transfer calling. So what's the calling? He says it clearly here, and it's the same thing he says at the end of the book, to make sure we got it. To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. We are drawn in through the word to the incarnate, crucified, risen, exalted Christ reigning at the center. To receive grace upon grace upon grace in Christ there. To be sent out from there with a calling to the nations. And that calling is to call the nations into the center through the very word that continually calls us in. That's the mission. And good biblical theology always leads us there and compels us out from there. But look also. Good biblical theology also cares for your hurting, broken, confused, and needy soul there. Verse 6 is a reminder that the center doesn't just send you out as if you're a commodity of God to be spent up and discarded. It doesn't just send you out, but brothers and sisters, it includes you in. And his word is his means to continually call you into where he is, not just to receive grace to go out, but grace, as verse 6 says, to to be reassured in every suffering and every heartache and every letdown and every struggle that you belong where he is because you belong to him. And for some of you, that's where you need to be most urgently this morning because you are barely holding on. And all I'm simply praying is that you are compelled in this morning through hermeneutics and through theology and through types and through shadows and through details. You're compelled in so that you can receive grace and assurance that you belong there where he is, even if you have no idea where you belong here in this world. 
May grace be given to you this morning in that center to fight the good fight of faith and flee temptation and resist the devil and weep and rejoice and cry out and say thanks and repent and believe and fall down and worship. May we be drawn in. And may we understand Christ exalted at the center of the scriptures, not just to be a topic for debate and theological alignment, but brothers and sisters, our mission. To be drawn in and to be sent out with this message of good news and great joy for all people until every last one is compelled in by the Spirit and Christ returns and all is made eternally new. And we who are compelled in by the scriptures to see by faith Christ there are eternally seeing him by sight when he comes back. Brothers and sisters, may God bless you and may God keep you. And may God make his face to shine once again through his word this morning, bright and beautifully in Christ upon you. Let me pray to that end. Father, to spend time in your word is something that we treasure. Treasure it. Because your word speaks. You spoke and you speak. You speak afresh by your spirit. You compel us in to see Christ. And Father, we know that is what you want us to see more than anything. It is what glorifies you. It is what the spirit says is his mission to do. And it is what we need most this morning. Compel us in. By your spirit, minister to our hurting, confused, despairing, broken souls there. And then, Lord, compel us out by grace to call others in. Thank you for biblical theology. Thank you that it's just a title that tries to capture what in your word seems to be embedded is so natural. Help us see it. Help us know you and love you. Pursue you, fight, persevere today. In Jesus' name.